It's lovely to see you all here. Uh, my name is... I'm supposed to do this. There's so many instructions. <laughs> That's my name, Conor Geerty. And I am Professor of Human Rights Law at LSE. And I'm supposed to tell you... There's so much of this stuff. I'm supposed to tell you to tweet. That's it. To tweet. Uh, the Twitter tag is hashtag LSEUDHR. Right? You all look as though you, you don't look as though you're rushing to your devices, about which I'm very sorry. Uh, the prompt also says I should welcome you all, so welcome to LSE. And this is being audio recorded, and then rather ominously, technology permitting, we will have a podcast of the lecture and the question and answer session online in a few days. Technology permitting. I'm sure the technology will allow us. Uh, Francesca, on whom more in a moment, is going to speak for 40 to 50 minutes on the topic of Universal Declaration of Human Rights at 70 rejuvenate or retire. And then after that, there will be a question and answer session. And that will proceed, and instructions on that will follow. And after that, after that, at about 8 o'clock, or if we run out of steam a bit earlier, there will be drinks, drinks, plural, which is marvelous. It's like old times. <laughs> and the drinks will be available in approximate venue, on which more later. No, don't give it away, Francesca. They, look, <laughs> they always all leave. You they always all leave. Run out. Yeah. They always all leave. Now, I, uh, I was looking forward to this, and then uh, they asked me to chair it. And I have this chance to say what a fantastic colleague uh, at LSE Francesca has been. I just want to put that out there. I wouldn't be at LSE. This may be regarded by you all as a black mark, but I wouldn't be at LSE were it not for Francesca. This, uh, she persuaded me to apply for a job directing the Center for the Study of Human Rights, and I thought because I was violently opposed to human rights, I wouldn't be a good person for the job, but she persuaded me that opposition to human rights was a sine qua non for the appointment. <laughs> And, and then, like somebody who gets to manage heaven, I began to believe in God. And so here I am, a protagonist for human rights. But I really, I really want to acknowledge that. It was a fantastic move for me, and I'm still here, and it was because of Francesca OBE, which we have to mention as well. Uh, the, uh, friends in the audience. OBE. Jonathan Cooper has put OBE on his email. You've not got that low. <laughs> That's true. A visiting professor at the center. He's rightly embarrassed. At the center for the study of human rights uh, for many years, and uh, the runner of an innovative project, the Human Rights Future Project, uh, between 2001 and 2015. Uh, we were colleagues at King's College. Uh, uh, Francesca's been chair of the Freedom from Torture and also the British Institute of Human Rights. Uh, her work uh, on human rights has also, and this is an important point, covered not only academia, uh, but also, uh, really uh, unusually, politics and journalism. Really unusually. I don't know if there's anybody in the field who has covered these arenas of energy and activity so well as Francesca. She's worked 
Stop heckling, Francesca. <laughs> she's, she's worked. Uh, she produced an appendix or a schedule to the Joint Committee on Human Rights report, which is, was so good it became known as the Klug Report. I mean, it was a fantastic uh, in, in intervention. And she's also worked very closely with successive governments on human rights, uh, possibly not, however, this government. Possibly not this government. But she is uh, somebody who is actually uh, a, key, uh, a key person in the delivery of the Human Rights Act that we have in 1998. That's not generally known, but some of the behind-the-scenes work, intellectual and political, that Francesca did made the act possible. Uh, she's also, in the field of journalism, won the Bernard Crick Prize, which is an amazing achievement and much sought after in the field of political science. So there's a polymathic contribution. And uh, uh, apart from that, the academic side, we have a very well-known book, which was called Values for a Godless Age, and, and a more recent book, an excellent book, a Magna Carta for All Humanity. Now, a Magna Carta for All Humanity may be out for a few months, but you're still able to buy it. You're still able to buy it. And we've helpfully made that easier by uh, having a lovely little sheet. And there is an amazing discount. It's incredible. It's an incredible discount. So you'll have the chance to buy this. I'm not sure how you do it. Maybe by tweeting it or something. I don't know. But there it is. And you'll get a chance to buy it. And you really should. It's a fantastically interesting read. The very last thing I have to say is some of you are in perpetual need of continuing professional development. I normally know which of you it is. Some of you look more in need of professional development <laughs> than others. And I am told, I frankly don't believe it, I am told that there are various people here who know how to give you whichever form it is that announces you are present. And that means you get some, you get some marks by whichever of the professions it is that insists on your development. So I've said it, I've said it, there you are. Uh, I think it's the chaps in red and the ladies in red that will be able to help you on that uh, uh, or tell me in extremis. And then I'll ask you what Francesca said and if you show you are also listening, you'll get double, you'll get double, double marks. Uh, I think I've sort of run out of things to say. Uh, it's over to uh, Francesca Took. After that, you can understand why I persuaded him to come here and why believing in human rights or not was far less important than his character, his amazing ability to just ad-lib, which I have no ability of at all, and his genuine warmth and kindness as a human being. So you've had our love in now. We get down to business. It's, can you hear me? Because I always have to put this thing so low, it didn't know it could go this low to meet my height. Can you hear me? Am I speaking into the microphone? Yeah? Yep. That's great. I'm just going to pour myself some water if I can undo it because I will need to drink. And I'm afraid you've got about 50 minutes of listening to me. So if you fancy a snooze, start now. Okay. UDHR at 70, rejuvenate or retire. We have Heidi to thank at the back of the room, the manager of LSE Human Rights, who came up with this title. I thought it was brilliant, and she got me to think, and so tonight I'm trying to answer her question. So, for you, Heidi. As I get older, I take comfort in the adage that age is just a number. It's immaterial, unless you happen to be cheese or a bottle of wine. 
Compared to another iconic human rights document, whose anniversary was marked three years ago, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is still in its infancy, in fact. The Magna Carta, that medieval statement of rights for the nobility, extracted by English barons from a reluctant king in 1215, was commemorated, you may remember, with great fanfare by the British government on its 800th birthday. The Queen unveiled a plaque in the field at Runnymede, where King John and the barons hammered it out eight centuries earlier, and the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, who rarely started the day without a dig at the Human Rights Act, lauded the ancient document as the font of all our modern rights and liberties. Disregarded in this celebration was the stark reality that the Magna Carta has little or no direct legal effect and unsurprisingly for a medieval document, fails to recognize most human rights that we consider fundamental today, from free expression to non-discrimination. Although it is stronger on marrying off heirs, provided they're not to someone of a lower social standing. None of this is to deny the Magna Carta's enduring symbolism and influence, of course. That's what inspirational rights charters are for. That symbolism, always stronger in America than here, was reinforced by Eleanor Roosevelt, wife of the former president and mover and shaker behind the drafting of the Universal Declaration, when she predicted that it could become the International Magna Carta for humankind, hence the title of my book. And by the way, what Connor was trying to convey is that somewhere there are flyers with a 20% discount for it if you want to buy it at the end of this lecture. And just you, in case you think I'm being shameless, all the royalties are, go to uh, Freedom from Torture, the charity. So it's worth buying the book just for that. Eleanor Roosevelt made this remark about the International Magna Carta for Humankind when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or UDHR, was adopted on the 10th of December 1948 by the General Assembly of the fledgling United Nations in the wake of World War II. The ease with which I just recorded this fact belies the significance of that moment, seven decades ago, which most commentators agree could not be replicated now. We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and the life of mankind, Roosevelt proclaimed as the UDHR entered into human history. Her personal resilience and powers of persuasion were no doubt factors in its birth. You get a flavor of her character by her famous saying, a woman is like a tea bag. You only know how strong she is when she gets into hot water. <laughs> but this is not primarily a story of determined and committed women and men, although the mosaic of drafters undoubtedly contributed to the UDHR's unique characteristics. The final product bore the marks of Latin American socialists, Marxist Soviets, European Social Democrats, Middle Eastern Muslims, Lebanese and European Christians, a Chinese Confucian, an Indian Hindu, and a French Jew. 
They were driven not just by their own personal value systems and state ideologies, but by the unprecedented events that had just rocked their world, from the economic and political turmoil of the 1930s to a catastrophic global war and genocide, culminating in the first ever nuclear conflagration at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Despite this, the UDHR was drafted in a moment of relative optimism. The foundations of the old order of Western colonialism were just beginning to shake. For all that the UDHR was a product of state delegates at an international institution, it captured something of the shifting mood of the time, which combined increased hostility to state oppression with a greater respect for collectivist solutions for social ills. Whilst the idea of fundamental rights clearly did not begin in 1948, before anyone makes that point, and was never confined to one continent or culture, the UDHR was chief midwife to two modern principles. First, that human rights are universal, in the sense that regardless of national legislation, everyone is eligible for them because of our common humanity, not just white European Christian men. Sorry, you guys, you're still included, don't worry. <laughs> Second, that human rights are international in the sense that national sovereignty must not provide a cloak behind which governments hide, claiming that abuses against their own citizens or residents are their own business only, provided they comply with national laws. Persuading virtually every state at the time, only eight abstained, to sign up to these principles, if only as a standard by which to judge everybody else, was undoubtedly a watershed in human history, as Roosevelt claimed. But in contrast to the Magna Carta celebrations, I doubt very much that the British government will organise a state knees-up at the end of the year for the UDHR's 70th birthday. I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me that the times we are living through are unlikely to accommodate that, aren't they? Every word of the UDHR's title, when you think about it, jars with the current national ethos, doesn't it? Universal, smacks of cosmopolitanism. Declaration sounds dangerously vague and foreign. Why human instead of citizens? And as for rights, don't we have too many already? But a 70th birthday is a landmark and an opportunity to take stock in anyone's life. The 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer put it like this. The first 40 years of our life gives us the text. The next 30 furnish the commentary upon it, which enables us rightly to understand the true meaning and connection of the text. Well, you'll be relieved that I won't take 30 years to expound on the UDHR, but I do hope to provide some commentary and context tonight through this multidisciplinary lecture for a multidisciplinary audience, commentary which only the passage of time can truly reveal. But first, I need to make a confession. There's an invisible subtitle to this lecture, which I didn't let you know of because you probably wouldn't have come if you had known. It's called What the UDHR Means to Me. Speaking here at the LSE, where I worked for 14 years, as Connor said, and was a student for four, in a changing world, this lecture theatre is my one constant, barely changed, I'm drawn to reflect and share with you what drew me to human rights in the first place. 
I first came across the Declaration when I worked for the NGO Liberty in 1989. The Berlin Wall had just come down in what was widely viewed as the first modern human rights revolution. Being an LSE undergraduate in the mid-1970s, I'd been schooled to expect a revolution or two would happen in my lifetime, but we were expecting them to be against capitalism, not communism. Instead, the so-called velvet revolutions that spread across Eastern Europe at the end of the 1980s were in the name not of Marxism, but of democracy and human rights. I wanted to understand more, so I read the UDHR. In all honesty, that's exactly what I did. The founding document and arguably original spark of the human rights activism that was then blossoming in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. And I became drawn in. Why? Well, it was partly the poetic preamble referring to disregard and contempt for human rights that have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind. I knew immediately what was partly being referenced here. Members of my own extended family had disappeared into the Nazi death camps or emigrated earlier to escape poverty and persecution. And I was moved that such horrors had produced not just more horrors and more nationalism, but something so positive and hopeful and, most importantly, universal. But the draw of the UDHR for me was as much about its vision for the future as its rejection of a cataclysmic past. In an era, then, of rampant individualism in the West, bolstered by the failures of state communism in the East, the blending of individual freedom with a collectivist vision for a fairer society in the UDHR resonated strongly with me. Reflected in the equal weight given to economic, social, and cultural rights alongside civil and political liberties, the UDHR's communitarian emphasis, and I mean it, communitarian emphasis on social progress and better standards of life that's the words from the preamble. This was a revelation to me. There's even a right to rest and leisure, which strongly appealed. <laughs> I was far from alone, as Connor will tell you, in understanding for the first time that the post-war human rights renaissance was more than a proclamation of legal rights, but was a stab at crafting an ethical vision for a good society and a better world. Before the late 1980s, human rights in the UK were almost entirely associated with foreign policy, or seen as indistinguishable from civil liberties, and were generally championed only by lawyers or liberals with a lowercase l. Critics from left to right tended to dismiss human rights as over-concentrated on individuals, conflating respect for the dignity and worth of every human being with selfish individualism, much as Marx had done a century earlier when he dismissed the so-called rights of man. Now, a growing cohort of us, and some of them are, I'm very happy to see in the lecture hall at the front today, a growing cohort of us from a range of philosophical and political backgrounds, or none, began to self-identify as human rights campaigners. We began demanding that the international human rights framework, instrumentalized by Western governments to judge every regime but their own, should also be used to spotlight abuses closer to home. 
From one perspective, the end of the Cold War provided yet another opportunity for Western powers to impose their hegemonic worldview on others, dressed up as the promotion of democracy and human rights. From another perspective, which I shared, the full spectrum of human rights promoted by the UDHR were finally liberated from the artificial polarization of a superpower game that had pitted, pitted civil and political liberties promoted by the capitalist West against social and economic rights supported by the communist East. They were now free to evolve in response to the challenging and changing conditions of the late 20th century, or so we thought. Nearly 30 years later, after 9-11, after the Iraq War, after the economic crash, after the rise and fall of the so-called Islamic State, or Daesh, and in the midst of a new age of nationalism and rule by strongmen, the influence and impact of the UDHR and its progeny have been tested almost to destruction. So the start of the Declaration's 70th year seems an apt time to ask tonight's question. The UDHR, rejuvenate or retire? The case for the prosecution, by which I mean retirement, is not difficult to construct. If the UDHR is viewed as a product of a never-again moment at the end of World War II, aimed at eliminating human rights abuses worldwide, then it has self-evidently been an abject failure. I put it that strongly. On that basis, it has already effectively retired itself. It's almost too banal, isn't it, to acknowledge that human rights abuses are rampant everywhere with no indication that they are reducing in frequency or scope? Whilst World War II, the most lethal in human history, was notorious for the deliberate targeting of civilians by all sides, over 60% of the 17 million human beings killed in the war were civilians. By the 1990s, a UN report determined that armed conflict now routinely kills more children than soldiers. Whilst the new crime of genocide was recognized by the UN in 1948 to prevent and punish mass extermination aimed at eliminating all or part of an ethnic group following the annihilation of approximately a quarter of European Roma and two-thirds of European Jews, in the decades since, we witnessed more genocides, crimes against humanity, mass rapes, forced displacements, ethnic cleansing, even slave markets, for goodness sake, atrocities committed by terror groups as well as by states. The list of countries and peoples affected is too long to bear, but just about every continent, every ethnic group, faith and ideology have been complicit a form of universalism, I suppose, though not as the UDHR envisaged it. But the case for the defense, or rather the rejuvenation of the UDHR, is premised on an altogether different argument. Even at their most optimistic, the UDHR drafters did not imagine they'd eliminate state oppression and human cruelty. They chiefly set out to craft a big idea, a set of common standards and values to help shape the way the world was viewed in the new era they believed was dawning. Their central contention was that we're all members of the human family, 
as the very first sentence of the preamble puts it. And it's hard to exaggerate what a radical statement that was in 1948. And that freedom of justice, freedom, justice, and peace in the world are founded on equal dignity and human rights, as the preamble puts it. Their central aim was to fortify everyone, not just states, to recognize when such norms are breached and speak out or stand up to defend them. In essence, my contention is that the declaration was written precisely for a moment like now. So this is not the time to give it a gold watch and wave it goodbye. To develop my case further, I will explore in turn three possible readings or interpretations of the UDHR. First, legal. Second, what I'm calling geopolitical. And third, ethical stroke inspirational. They overlap but are distinguishable. First, the legal reading. The UDHR is what it says on the tin. It's a declaration, not a legally binding treaty. But its legal influence around the globe belies that description. The abject failure of the international community, and in particular the limp League of Nations, the UN's precursor, to prevent crimes against humanity and ultimately genocide at the heart of supposedly democratic Europe, despite the writing on the wall for over a decade, was one of the key drivers behind the campaign for the nascent United Nations to adopt an international Bill of Rights. Amongst those lobbying were the oldest American civil rights group, the NAACP, the American Jewish Committee, Catholic groups, Latin American NGOs, and academic lawyers who were themselves refugees from fascism, like René Cassin and Hirsch Lauterpacht. For many of these advocates then, this was not simply an intellectual project for NGOs and lawyers, but a very personal pursuit for global justice and equality. Some were bitterly disappointed, therefore, when a declaration rather than a legally binding treaty were drafted by the UN Commission on Human Rights, chaired by that famous teabag, Eleanor Roosevelt. The description of the UDHR as a moral document by its drafters did not placate their sense of betrayal. They wrote it off as a damp squib. I see their point insofar as the word rights, defined as a legal claim which activates the duty of others, is to some degree misleading. The drafters may as well have called it a declaration of human dignity or ethical demands, the term adopted by the Indian philosopher Amartya Sen. But what they could not have known then is that the UDHR would become the procreator of international human rights law providing safeguards and sometimes lifelines for thousands of people from all walks of life when national laws failed them, including here in the UK. Some of the Declaration's articles have been cited so frequently in case law, they are widely considered part of binding customary international law. More significantly, the UDHR has parented 16 UN human rights treaties that are legally binding, including the twin UN covenants spanning economic, social and cultural and civil and political rights respectively, plus a host of regional treaties in Africa, the Americas and Europe, including 
the European Convention on Human Rights, or ECHR, mostly incorporated into our law through the Human Rights Act, which itself is celebrating its 20th birthday this year. It's quite a year for birthdays. We all know what today is, just to acknowledge it. It is the 100th anniversary of the Representation of the Peoples Act. So there's a lot of birthdays this year. A number of these treaties are single-issue instruments on issues ranging from torture to gender, race, and disability discrimination. The UN's Convention on the Rights of the Child is widely recognized as the most complete statement of children's rights in human history. Virtually all of these treaties, including the ECHR, explicitly acknowledge their UDHR parentage and their preambles. Many have increased the scope of the Declaration, correcting its deficiencies that reflected the era it was drafted in, encompassing new insights and struggles. All of us take for granted that these norms play some part of in, in our world, don't we? But just 70 years ago, which I know will seem a long time to some of you, just 70 years ago there were no internationally recognized human rights standards to cite in political struggles, let alone international human rights courts or committees where individuals could hold their own governments to account. There was, in fact virtually no legal basis for one state interfering with another in the treatment of its own citizens at all. None of these developments came out of the ether. All came after prolonged suffering, struggles and negotiations, often including the people most affected. Yet the crucially important legal recognition of universal human rights norms has undoubtedly come at a price. Human rights are not a euphemism for legal rights, but a means of influencing them. Blunted by the paradox of legalism, by which I mean that the legal enforcement of human rights can also blur their meaning. For too many people here in the UK, human rights are understood only as the last legal case they've read about, usually through the tabloid press. The ethic of human rights, the emotions of care and empathy they should elicit, and their reach to all sections of society are often drowned out in the cacophony that ensues. Human rights battering, that well-known party game, has also gained credibility from my second category, what I'm calling a geopolitical reading of the UDHR. I'm referring here to the panoply of UN councils, committees, commissions, and rapporteurs, etc., composed of state representatives or appointees who employ naming, shaming, and other forms of soft power to seek human rights compliance worldwide. The criticism that this architecture can unintentionally legitimize some of the world's worst human rights-abusing states through their interpretation of the through their representation on UN human rights bodies, is matched by the slamming of the entire edifice as a fig leaf for Western imperialism, providing cover not just for interference, but intervention by powerful states and their allies. When Western governments unilaterally invade and bomb another people in the name of human rights and democracy, human rights can understandably appear to be the modern-day cross on the medieval crusader's flag. 
non-military mechanisms for global human rights compliance, whilst disconnected from such adventures, can become collateral damage. Critiqued as deceptively ideological in their challenges to national sovereignty on human rights grounds. But to judge the value of the UDHR through this geopolitical lens is to miss the main point, in my view. The UDHR is only partly addressed to states. It is to humans, to the peoples of the United Nations, that the Declaration firstly speaks, and to every individual and every organ of society whose promotion of these rights and freedoms is vital for their full realization, as the preamble declares. What is often overlooked in the geopolitical critique of human rights is the role UN and regional mechanisms can play in facilitating this personal responsibility by enabling civil society participation in human rights compliance, shedding light on hidden lives everywhere in a manner that dry policy papers and statistical analyses rarely can. Take the highly esteemed UN-appointed Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty in Human Rights, Philip Alston, for example. He's condemned the treatment of women in Saudi Arabia, denounced the Brazilian government for its austerity measures, and is now investigating Trump's America, declaring... Washington is very keen for me to point out that poverty and human rights failings in other countries, this time I'm in the United States. Applying the higher norms of the UDHR's holistic framework, Alston's fact-finding mission into the world's richest nation focuses on the 41 million Americas, Americans, many from racial minorities, who live in poverty exposing the hypocrisy of the state, which, even under Trump, opportunistically weaponizes human rights as an arm of foreign policy, but never a domestic one. A recent UN inquiry into the rights of people with disabilities here in the UK similarly highlighted the disproportionate impact of benefit cuts on disabled people here in Britain who've taken the blunt of austerity measures to meet a deficit caused not by disabled people, of course, but by failing banks, greed and indebtedness. The UN report didn't mince its words and has been used by disability campaigners to add to the mounting popular pressure against austerity in this country. This is an example of what my colleague here, Professor Geerty, has called the visibility project of human rights, when the goal is to get us to see people as truly human and therefore entitled to right treatment on account of their humanity. Just over 70 years ago, there were no international monitoring bodies to speak out about the mass murder of people with disabilities by the Nazis, let alone about benefit cuts. This visibility project has been turbocharged by our technologically interconnected world, yet its foundations, I would suggest, lie in the values and standards of the UDHR. It is these which underpin both the Declaration's legal manifestation and the international architecture I just described. This takes us to my third category, the ethical inspirational reading of the UDHR, for which we need to time travel back to 1948. Reading the delegates' debates, it's striking 
that the aspiration to craft a declaration that was both ethical and inspirational was a major objective from the outset. At their very first drafting meeting, Dr. Charles Malik, the Lebanese delegate, lamented that they needed poets, prophets, and philosophers more than politicians, diplomats, and lawyers. Although the drafters were a bit short on poets, prophets and philosophers hovered over all their deliberations, not only because they referenced biblical prophets and Confucian and Enlightenment philosophers, but because they received the written advice of a pantheon of living thinkers, such as Mahatma Gandhi, Aldous Huxley, Howard Lasky, and Jacques Maritain. In the wake of a war that had come close to wiping out humanity, the drafters asked themselves three primary questions that can be characterized as follows. First, a philosophical question. How does the world conceive of the essential worth and dignity of humanity in the middle of the 20th century, as Dr. Malik put it? Second, a political question. What are the lessons our political leaders, and indeed all human beings, should learn from the catastrophic events that have just befallen the world? And third, a legal and social policy question. What would it take to make life livable for every human being and for diverse communities and nations to live together harmoniously within and between states? These questions were not addressed in a vacuum. The core doctrine of the Nazi ideology that led to genocide had been life unworthy of living. In seeking answers to those three primary questions, the drafters therefore never lost sight of the human beings who'd forfeited the right to have rights, as the philosopher Hannah Arendt notably put it. The barbarous acts referenced in the preamble, which began in Europe and eventually impacted on the whole world, were both the prelude to and driver of their deliberations. Sometimes this backdrop was explicit, other times it was implied. This was a very different context to the late 18th century European Enlightenment, whose worldview the UDHR is often confused with in what, in my view, is a basic category error. This is a crucial point. If the UDHR was nothing more than a European Enlightenment paradigm repackaged for global export, then the Western imperialism charge would be completely fair. But the iconic French and American bills of rights, although clearly influential on aspects of the Declaration, were chiefly aimed at empowering white Christian men in their obviously very important struggles against church and state. But the UDHR, in contrast, was focused more on inculcating a sense of justice and mutual moral responsibility in all human beings everywhere. In fact, the UDHR drafters set themselves the task of facing up to the failure of so-called Enlightenment values to eliminate slavery, emancipate women, and prevent the persecution and ultimately mass murder of those who didn't fit a perverted European norm just because they were gay or disabled or black or Roma or Jewish or just other. The drafters sent themselves the task of confronting the failure of some European democracies, nation-states which treasured their national sovereignty to protect themselves from tyranny, partly because from the election of Hitler onwards, what happened afterwards was deemed to be the will of the people. 
There are many ways of characterising the UDHR, but a neat one that comes to mind is that the vision it projected was the polar opposite of the rhetoric gaining traction today. <laughs> Instead of make America or Britain or wherever great again, a perfectly imaginable response at the end of World War II, a prime aim of the declaration was to promote cooperation between member states and an international order in which human rights can be realized. Instead of a discourse about taking back control from transnational bodies, the declaration called time on nation states only policing themselves. An international framework promoted by the UN was deemed necessary above all to prevent states from extinguishing the rights of major minorities on the basis of the will of the majority. Instead of asserting that if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, that was our Prime Minister in 2016, the essence of the UDHR, according to René Cassin, one of the main drafters, was to stress the fundamental principle of the unity of the human race. The world vision advanced by the UDHR, the drafters' answers to the primary questions I listed a moment ago, can be distilled into three simple assertions that you might think are ever more relevant for our world today. First, that an existence bereft of dignity is like a human being without a soul, so that freedom without the economic wherewithal to live a dignified life is no freedom at all. Second, that if democracies are not to crumble into ethno-nationalist tyrannies, a system of accountability to a higher set of norms and institutions must moderate national sovereignty and majority rule. And third, that when the chips are down and life and liberty are at stake, humanity should always trump nationality. As we are once again confronted with political leaders who thrive on divisions, it's striking how virtually every article in the UDHR and the treaties it begat, including the ECHR, begin with the word everyone. But it's a solidaristic rather than individualistic take on the word. The purpose of the UDHR was emphatically not to encourage self-centered individualism as Marx feared, but to bolster the social nature of human beings. Human beings who the text asserts in Article 29 have duties to the community, in which alone the free and full development of personality is possible. Or, as the Chinese delegate Chang Pengchun put it, the aim was not to ensure the selfish gains of the individual, but to try to increase man's moral stature and sense of mutual responsibility. But how, you may ask, fine words? Well, the very first article asserts that human beings are endowed with reason and conscience. Whether these terms denote human capacities which enable us to know how to act towards one another or are conceived as essential human characteristics which justify the rights that follow is unclear. Either way, the significance of adding conscience to reason is as great as adding human to rights. Descartes' I think, therefore I am, is transformed in the UDHR's vision to I think and feel, therefore I am, signalling the importance of empathy alongside rationality in crafting a better world. Although the drafters clearly aspire to a framework for those of any faith or none, 
Cassin went so far as to maintain that the first article of the UDHR, with its commandment that we should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood, corresponded to two iconic biblical injunctions, love thy neighbor as thyself, and you shall not oppress a stranger, for you were strangers once, repeated at least 36 times in what we call the Old Testament. Islamic scholar Hossein Merpour cites Quranic values of justice, mercy, and goodness as integral to the UDHR, whilst Catholic theologians have linked it to the natural law theories of St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. Now, the point of mentioning these cross-cultural metaphysical illusions is that they are less surprising when you consider the input to the draft from so many nations and cultures. In alphabetical order, these included Australia, China, Egypt, East and West Europe, Iran, Lebanon, Mexico, the Philippines, New Zealand, and the USA. But the drafting process should not be sentimentalized. The whole of sub-Saharan Africa was unrepresented due to Europe's imperial rule of the continent, legitimately falling, fueling questions about the applicability of labeling the declaration universal at all. It's not that the drafters were unaware of this contradiction. The colonial powers were discomforted at repeated reminders by delegates from recently colonized or occupied states whose pushing and probing influenced the final draft. But the emphasis on universality, Kassan explained, was because the Nazis had started by asserting the inequality of people even before attacking their liberties. The UDHR's essential purpose, therefore, in a world disfigured by exclusion and hierarchy was to assert that everyone is equal in dignity and rights, as the first article declares, and that all states, without exception, and increasingly nowadays, non-state abusers of power, should be held to account if people are treated otherwise. Universalism, in other words, was not just intended to refer to the holders of human rights, but to duty bearers, so that human rights violations, whilst the direct responsibility of states, would become everybody in the world's business. Or to put it differently, a little bit differently, human beings of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but division and war. This focus on human responsibility sheds some light on why partway through the deliberations, the title of the declaration was changed from international to universal, shifting a, signifying a shift in orientation from states to human beings. But to some degree, theoretical debates about universalism, which I cannot do justice to in this lecture, have anyway now been overtaken by facts on the ground, by what human rights scholars call human rights practice, where norms and ideas have infiltrated the demands and mindsets of human beings and NGOs all over the globe. Whilst human rights activism on today's scale took many decades to materialize, nearly all the interesting debates on human rights take place in the global south now, all around the world, there are people who describe themselves as human rights defenders, from LGBT groups resisting legalized and potentially lethal homophobia in Uganda to detained asylum seekers in Papua New Guinea, who in 2017 were movingly filmed chanting, human rights help us, human rights help us, 
Turning to human rights as an idea and ideal when all else has failed you is not an unexpected byproduct of the UDHR. It encapsulates its very purpose. Historian Jean Quartet, in her study of human rights mobilization, describes how by the end of the 20th century, the language of human rights had become an increasingly effective medium by which to press a moral claim. A moral claim is a good phrase. It marks the passage from the essentialist natural rights beloved of enlightenment thinkers for whom rights was a product of nature to human rights as an ethical framework and a moral argument about how to improve our world. Millions of people, not all of whom are autocratic rulers, do not accept this argument, of course, but countless other activists and NGOs who once might have described themselves as liberationists or nationalists or Marxists now frame their struggles, at least partly, in human rights terms. You don't have to have heard of the UDHR, in other words, let alone to have read it, to have absorbed its norms, which have seeped into national and international discourse. Yet there's also some evidence of the UDHR's direct visibility, reflected in its status as the most translated document in history, as certified by the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> A YouGov poll of the 80 greatest landmarks of the last 80 years placed the UDHR fourth, beaten only by penicillin, the internet, and computers. I imagine René Casson would have been so chuffed by that he insisted our declaration represents the most vigorous protest of humanity against the atrocities and the oppression which millions of human beings have suffered through the centuries. This inspirational reading of the UDHR seems to be how Nelson Mandela heard it too, just as apartheid was being entrenched in South Africa. He later described how its simple and noble words, as he put it, provided an inspiration to many millions of South Africans that we were not alone. It's remarkable, isn't it, when you think about it, that this was Mandela's response? It would have been more understandable if he'd seen the UDHR as limp and impotent. One way of explaining this inspirational effect is that the UDHR reflected the wisdom of the ages, or as the scholar Saleh Ben-Habib has put it, it reflected the moral learning experiences, not only of Western humanity, but humanity at large, a distillation of collective struggles. Perhaps if the last 70 years had not been an age of failed utopias, the UDHR would be no more than a historical footnote by now. The legal historian, Professor Samuel Moyne, who I think is going to give a lecture in a couple of days' time for LSE Human Rights, is surely right that human rights were born as a moral utopia when political utopias died. In Europe, I trace this not to the 1970s, he does, but to the fall of the Berlin Wall, as I described at the beginning of the lecture. But my point is that the UDHR could not have filled this lacuna were it not for its ethical inspirational vision which has provided hope that the cruelties and perversions which have besmirched the name of nationalism, Marxism, and faiths and ideologies of many kinds are not an invariable feature of transformational change. The ethical worldview encapsulated in the UDHR is not, in other words, intended as an alternative ideology to other political, secular, or religious philosophies, but as a bottom-line set of norms and standards which do not obliterate diversity, 
but to the contrary, seek to enable different communities to live together in mutual respect and peace. In conclusion, the times we are living in now have been described as a new age of nationalism, of populism, of extremes. We've stopped time traveling, we're back in the present. Whether any of these terms are quite right, I think we can all agree it's a bad time for satirists and clairvoyants. Whatever our political views, just 20 months ago, I suspect few of us envisaged Brexit or Trump and the divisiveness that's followed. I can tell you on good authority, there's no precedent for the office of the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights feeling compelled to call the President of America's language racist. Meanwhile, amid signs of a counter-reaction, the left has become resurgent in parts of Europe, here and even America, the women's movement has been galvanized, and new forms of protest and resistance are popping up all over the place, emphasizing this mood of volatility and unpredictability, which is why clairvoyance might as well retire. Far from these developments increasing the case for the UDHR's retirement or redundancy, adopting human rights norms of individual and group justice could help us avoid revisiting the failures of the past. Yet in the 30 years I've been studying and writing about human rights, I can remember no period when we've been in greater danger of losing the insights and wisdom of the UDHR and its edifice of common standards and norms. Western democracies, like many other states, have always abused human rights, of course, whilst valuing them as a means by which the West can judge the rest. But there's never been a time since 1948 when states that once claimed to champion the UDHR have so fiercely articulated a worldview and mindset which directly or indirectly undermines its basic value system. And this is being noticed everywhere. The Chinese artist and activist Ai Weiwei remarked just a few days ago that the West has all but abandoned its support for the precious ideals contained in declarations of universal rights, as he put it. Whilst the world holds its breath as Donald Trump puts America first again, I must have missed the time when America was second myself. <laughs> and finds an equivalence between neo-Nazis and their opponents in America, Europe waits apprehensively to discover whether after withdrawing from the EU Human Rights Charter, the UK has the European Court of Human Rights in its sights next. These shifts have been a long time in the making. As others have commented, they appear driven by a popular backlash against the grotesque inequalities and marginalization of communities left behind by globalization, ruthlessly exploited by those who've benefited the most from it. If support for universal human rights have also been a casualty of this backlash, then some of the unintended negative consequences I described in my legal and geopolitical readings of the UDHR, I'm afraid have also played their part. But when a zeitgeist changes like this, it can be quite sudden and quite contagious, can't it? I'm not a big fan of league tables myself, but the latest rule of law index saw a decline in human rights observances in a majority of countries worldwide. 
strong men rulers who acknowledge few higher norms than the greatness of their own state and themselves, compete for influence as the epicenter of world power shifts inexorably towards China and to some degree Russia, whose governments don't even pretend to value human rights, even hypocritically. Within Europe, whilst predicted outright victories for parties of the nationalist right in Austria, France and Holland did not materialise last year as we'd all feared, nevertheless, anti-Muslim ethno-nationalism is resurgent in all those countries alongside Germany, the Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland, the former epicentres of the human rights revolutions I referenced earlier. In Germany, this is often linked to Angela Merkel's exceptional act of receiving over one million asylum seekers. But Hungary and Poland have not accepted a single refugee under the EU quota system, suggesting leadership and ideology are also crucial factors in resurgent xenophobia. This is not to imply we are reliving the precise conditions that led to the UDH after World War II. The Universal Declaration, you see, wasn't written for the past, for that was already over and could not be undone. It was written, I would suggest, for a precise moment like now, to help us to recognize when forgetfulness returns, as the drafters knew it surely would, and lessons learned from genocide and war are replaced by a new narrowing of the horizon as national pride and international indifference re-emerge in fresh forms, as us and them increasingly replace we and everyone, as pooling sovereignty or adopting regional or international norms is characterized as becoming a vassal state. The danger is not that the UDHR will be overturned or ridiculed in some future late-night tweet. The greater threat is that international norms of solidarity and humanity that the barbarous acts gave expression to in the form of the UDHR will simply be forgotten, will wither away from lack of use and application. Or that powerful words from the UDHR, like everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution, will become obscure and obsolete as most of the language in the Magna Carta is to us today. The cosmopolitan norm, so-called, heralded by the UDHR, was not aimed at diluting citizenship of individual states, whatever anyone will tell you, or national identity, but at reaffirming our membership of one human family, as the UDHR put it, providing a bottom-line guarantee that the global community will protect us when our own governments won't. To end with our Prime Minister's assertion, in full this time, that if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, you don't understand what the very word citizenship means. She may have been alluding to the rich and powerful in this statement, but I can only assume that she couldn't understand how this would sound to the effectively stateless Rohingya from Myanmar, to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and to five million Syrian refugees, to anyone, in fact, whose family, now or in the past, has been reliant on the global community to recognize their claim to a higher citizenship than the one they happen to be born into, if born into one at all. No one could put it better than Ai Weiwei when he wrote last week 
that establishing an understanding that we all belong to one humanity is the most essential step for how we might continue to exist on this sphere we call Earth. Speaking personally, again, if supporting this universal norm makes me a citizen of the world or of nowhere, I wear that badge with pride. So happy birthday, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and many more to come. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you very much, uh, Francesca. That was a uh, tour de force. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping now the technical challenges will disappear and you'll be able to see that or hear it again. I mean, the, the waves, legal, geopolitical, inspirational, and the treatment of the universal... Some words really struck me. Shedding light on hidden lives. I think that's fantastic. Human beings of the world unite. I think I and feel, therefore I am. I mean, there was a lot there. There was a lot there. It was terrific, terrific. Really, really enjoyable. Now, look, uh, we have about half an hour, and uh, this is a question and answer session. Uh, I think it'd be quite good. It'd be quite good if we can try. I don't want to inhibit the questioning but connect it up with what we heard. I'd be interested in that. I mean, particularly, I think, at the end. I mean, is this thing going to run? Are there weaknesses in the future? You know. Uh, so let's, let's think about what we've heard and, and of course, weave in our, our own questions and observations, for sure. Uh, there are people in red who have got microphones, and, and over there as well. And uh, what I'd like to do now is take maybe three in a row of questions, observations, relatively succinct uh, and uh, preceded by saying if you feel able to who you are and whether you have an organization or what you're, where you're from so we can locate you a bit. Uh, and then we'll go to Francesca. Is that right, Francesca, we do that? Absolutely. About three and then we'll get some more and I'm hoping we get a few rounds in so we get a bit of energy going. And I think, you know, the onus is on us now to... Uh, to mirror the quality of that presentation in the quality of our questions. So, uh, red coats, you're available. Do does anybody want to catch my eye, or have I so inhibited you? You're now afraid of answering I'm questions. There's a gentleman in the middle there who's saving my blushes. The, he is in the most inaccessible point in the entire hall. <laughs> so there is a microphone heading towards him. Do I have another hand up? I have another person here. That's very good. That's two. And there's a whole lot of people pointing out Jonathan Cooper, whom I know. <laughs> I'm not supposed to reveal I know them, but he's, uh, he's from the British Empire, so we'll take him. So, uh, sir, let's get it off to a good start with name, organization, okay. a question. Hugh Sanderman, LSE Ideas, and a volunteer at Amnesty International. Professor Clue, given the new reality, the shift in political power that you describe, do you think the international human rights NGOs have adapted enough in the way they behave and react to this new reality. Uh, fabulous, Hugh. Marvellous. I love the question's end. It's quite a unique situation, so thank you. Uh, I know who you are, of course, but here we are. You're on. Uh, hi, I'm Chiara. I'm an LLM student here at LSE. Um, you talked about the visibility project for viewing people as human and then also about the press in the UK kind of constantly showing us the negatives of human rights. You know, human rights protect people like Abu Qatada, etc. Um, so do you think we can or do we need a visibility project for the positives of, of human rights to galvanise... For the what, The positives of human rights to sort of galvanise support. 
Did you say punters? Positives. Positives. The positives of human rights. Do you think we need it for punters as well? Since <laughs> no, let's leave that one out. Jonathan Cooper. Uh, thank you. Um, aren't we really at the UDHR's wake, Francesca? And I say that because of what this government is doing around the EU Charter, which, of course, you referred to, and the fact that this government is perfectly prepared to, to ditch and rip up the Charter that is the main document now for European human rights protection. And I think the fact that they are prepared to do that, and we're hearing nothing from the Commission and the European institutions to say, no, you can't do that if you want to have any kind of relationship with us in the future. But isn't that really a, a, a statement that actually the Human Rights Project feels over and that really we're celebrating the death of the UDHR? Jonathan, we didn't actually say, because I know you, who you are. Do you want to say it just oh, briefly? Because it would be helpful Cooper to from people. Daphne Street Chambers. From Chambers, and editor of the European Human Rights Law Review, I think it's worth uh, yeah. adding. Yeah, and yeah. I have an OBE, as you pointed and, out. <laughs> but it's, I don't know how big a good one that is. It's not Sir Jonathan Cooper. That would be a mistake. I but, wanna... but, but, but according to the. No, the, level enough. But according to the most eminent um, Geoffrey Robertson, that makes all of us with these honours legitimate uh, targets of war, which I think is very funny. <laughs> right, I think that's gone on enough, hasn't it? Uh, terrific, great three questions. Think about ones to come. Francesca, in any order you wish. Okay, I'll start, I'll, I'll take them in reverse order, I think, actually. Or I'll do three, one, two, just to be awkward. Um, yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up wakes, because I was thinking, God, that was a bit sombre. I don't know how you all, well, not all of you did manage to stay awake. And, and those of you that uh, did, you must be thinking, feeling terribly depressed now. So I thought, how can I sort of lighten the atmosphere a bit? And Jonathan helpfully asked me about wakes. Look, we all know that things are very, very bad. Um, and the politicking, the going around the withdrawal from the EU, Brexit issues, you know, really doesn't help us think about this, these issues in a coherent way at all. I think the EU and indeed the Council of Europe, are being extremely poor in spelling out on terms of human rights what the impact is of the UK withdrawal from the EU and indeed withdrawing very explicitly from the EU Charter of Human Rights, which um, I have to say to you, although it only applies to, to EU law, provides more safeguards than the Human Rights Act. Uh, and we need to look out for the fact that our Prime Minister has promised us that once we withdraw from the EU, we will go back to looking at whether we're going to repeal the Human Rights Act. So all of this is yet to come. We've hardly begun this journey. Things are only going to get worse rather than better, I fear. I do feel that the EU and the Council of Europe, very especially because the Council of Europe was set up particularly to... Uh, promote democracy and human rights are letting us down. But to go to the second question, because all these questions very neatly segue into each other, um, I think that um, a visibility project uh, does exist in this country. Um, it does exist. I think there are NGOs already, and I'm going to come to the first question um, after responding to you, Chiara, um, I do think there are some fantastic NGOs in this country who are trying all the time to make visible to us the impact of human rights. There happens to be a representative of one of them 
Helen Wildbore, a former colleague of mine who's sitting at the back of this room. Now, you may think I'm all very nasty and mean just because she used to work with me and putting her on the spot, but I did just happen to check out with her before tonight whether if the right question was asked, and this wasn't planned, I have to promise you, I could call her just to say a little bit about what the British Institute of Human Rights that Helen works for does to make human rights visible. If the chair uh, absolutely. To, the person who is not minute. wearing red but is red, <laughs> who is directly in the centre and has now got her hand up showing ambition to intervene with her propaganda. And then, Hugh, I will come back to your question, I promise you, after that. You've got a minute, Helen, oh, to sell is. the virtues of the organisation. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I was actually just about to ask a question, but I'll, I'll pause that. Um, we, I think, share your concerns about the world in general becoming more isolationist and looking inwards um, after Brexit, what's happening in the US with Trump and other places around the world. And I think the thing that is in danger with all of that is this idea of universalism, not just human rights for every country, but human rights for every person and that nobody gets left behind. And I think that's the danger at the moment. And I think we're also losing our link to that history with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights coming post-World War II, part of the peace settlement, and our human rights standards here at home for the Human Rights Act. And not many people make those links and know that history. So the British Institute of Human Rights just... Um, launched a campaign. Um, well, actually, we're going to have a whole programme of work this year around it, but our campaign, March for Human Rights, kickstarts it to really go back to that history and remind us what was at stake then, as you've said. But it's very much a future forward-looking document that was supposed to last throughout the ages and still around 70 years later, which is great. But I think that's the thing that's at risk at the moment, that we start to forget those values and forget that history. And we start to look inwards and just think about what are British values and what human rights do we want here in Britain and not part of that international conversation anymore. I think that would be... A terrible shame. So anyone can go on the British Institute of Human Rights website and find what your programme is for the year ahead, celebrating both the Universal Declaration and the Human Rights Act's 20th birthday. But going to Hugh's question, in some ways all these questions are related, but I think yours perhaps touches on a, another layer uh, of this question about what is the human rights community doing about this and is it, is it matching the times we are living in? One of the points I was making in my lecture, I didn't um, label it, um, I didn't go on about it, but I did touch on it, um, is that I'm afraid I do take the view, and I know this won't be popular with everyone in this room, that those of us who have uh, been in the world of fighting for human rights have played a part in this place we've got to, uh, not intentionally by any means, but unintentionally. Um, I spoke about the paradox of legalism and I spoke about the unintended consequence of the geopolitical enforcement of human rights. I don't want to bore you even more by repeating myself and the, you know, the, the lecture will be on podcast so people can watch it again if they're dying to. But the point I was trying to make is that we all have to take responsibility for the way that we have communicated about human rights, for the way that the um, UN structures of human, on human rights have developed over the years and our lack of 
frankly, openness about the problems inherent in them that I referred to earlier, and therefore I think we've had a part to play in human rights being part of this backlash, or at the very least, not providing the resistance to the inward-looking and nationalism that now characterizes our era. Nowhere more than in the so recent font of human rights revolutions that I was talking about in Eastern Europe. In only 30 years, we've got the same countries having moved from being the absolute epitome, uh, you know, the font of understanding what human rights are, to being some of the most xenophobic and nationalist states in the world. But having said all that, within every one of these states, including our own, there is no doubt there are people fighting every day for full understanding of human rights. They're doing it in different ways. They're doing it in a practical way like the BIHR. They're doing it in an intellectual way. And in the global south, they're doing it in a very real and meaningful way in, in, in that through the passage of times, they've taken the idea of universal human rights and reinterpreted them to make sense of their own world. So I think there is hope within the way that human rights Defenders have evolved over time and taken the world as it actually is and matched it with the norms and made sense of it. But I think we are catching up and we need to catch up very, very fast to understand the seriousness of the times we are living in, which I think was behind your question. Thanks. I've, I've, two gentlemen have caught my eye, and I'm going to take both of them, and the third I'll leave. I'm looking for a gender balance. So, madam, your moment has arrived. But we take this gentleman first. And we're going to take, uh, you can get a microphone into the middle. Sir, could you put your hand up so they can spot you? And uh, then we'll take this lady uh, there. Is there any other women who want to make a fourth? So I know I'm gender specialist at the moment. And the lady at the back. So we'll take four. Is it okay if we take four? Absolutely. So, Stuart, do you see that? This chap will want, uh, his hand is still up. Uh, we'll take your question, name, question or comment, uh, and organisation if you have one. Thank you. Okay. Um, my name is Andrew Copps and I work at Humanists UK. Um, Francesca, you, I think you made a really strong case that the, the situation today is uh, very bad, uh, not as bad as it was uh, just before, uh, the, the, in the years previous to the, the declaration being adopted. And, but you've also said that there's hope in activists and, and NGOs, but obviously it wasn't primarily activists and NGOs that uh, enabled the declaration to be written in, in the first place. Um, it was you know, states that would support that, states that were themselves uh, willing, at least temporarily, to be torchbearers of these things. Are there any states or you know, actors bigger than uh, NGOs in the world today that you think we can look at with hope if we can't look at the EU or America or anywhere else? Thank you, Andrew. Very good. And sorry, I think we've got you next. Have you got the microphone? Yes, excellent. And the two ladies are uh, in post. Sir, go. Name and question. I'm uh, William Horsley, formerly a BBC uh, journalist. Uh, now I work for the Centre for Freedom of the Media at the University of Sheffield. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the role of uh, information control. The media and journalists stand for holding power to account, but by general, by general consent, uh, the uh, world of uh, the internet and uh, the media that people receive is largely dominated now by the narrative that you described, uh, that of nationalism and uh, hatred or uh, suspicion of the other. And I wonder how you think that's come about. Uh, is it partly uh, the system in the communist world uh, was of state control of media? And after the fall of the wall, I think you said that that was a, a key moment, it does seem as though governments all over the world have actually managed somehow to control the information flow in unexpected ways. 
what, is the, what is the dynamic at work there? Thank you, William. Uh, you may be, like me, thinking that The Post as a movie was a bit elegiac for a past. <laughs> uh, we had somebody here, and there you are with the microphone. Hello. Uh, Hello. Hi. Thank you. I'm um, Kate Larson. Um, Sorry, what was that? Kate? Kate, yes, thank you. I work at Environmental Resources Management on human rights consulting to business um, and did a stint a while back in Human Rights Watch um, where we could not advocate on living wage, which brings me to my question, which is your point that you raised on what was not included in the declaration and what was missed out. Um, and the question is your thoughts on the rejuvenate word, um, whether that would help perhaps in the furthering and the bringing greater attention to the issue others have raised. Um, and there I would also make the link to the business and human rights movement that there's a lot of focus on environmental sustainability and yet really behind that is um, don't we have a right to a clean ocean free from plastic pollution um, or to clean rivers? New Zealand, the country I'm from, having made rivers have a right. <laughs> so, so that's the question. Your thoughts on rejuvenation, as you as you touched on. Thank okay, you. very good, Kate. Uh, I, I think that speaks for itself. And the lady, fourth Hello. one. Here we go. Hello, Delara from the Department of Government at LSC. Um, I'm wondering. My question is about the rise of nationalism and populism. So, in many countries where we see these trends, we also see them becoming more and more institu institutionalized. Um, they're growing from within, in a sense. And my question is. What's the best way to dismantle these trends since they're so institutionalized? And what's the best way to remind people, remind all those who are leaning towards isolationism and also um, racism and nationalism that the concept of um, the concept of everyone, in a sense, still exists and should continue? Okay, thanks, Sarah. You mean kind of how how can you fight back? Is that it? Yeah. Francesca, four of them. Right, I'm going to take them in order this time so I don't confuse myself because I'm so bad at maths. I get mixed up which order I said I was going to take them in. So, number one first, Andrew. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to slightly argue with the premise of your question because, I, as I said, I think that NGOs and ordinary people were quite crucial in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights ever coming to existence. I don't think it would ever have happened. If you read the debates, if you read the history of the San Francisco Conference, uh, it, you know, the, the, almost as soon as they had more or less promised to think about uh, International Bill of Rights, as they called it at the time, as I said, the term international was the one that was used at first, and then as the drafters were drafting the declaration, they changed it to universal. That in itself, we could spend the whole evening discussing that. I think it's fascinating, but it was a, a nod to the fact this was about human beings and not just about states. Without the pressure from NGOs, NAACP, enormous pressure they put on the American government. Without that, I don't think the Universal Declaration would ever have happened. And I think those, the, the, the NGOs and the ordinary people shouting from outside kept them clean when they were drafting. Uh, having said that, it was a moment in time. Do you know, early on in the debates, and I only found this out when I read the, 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 the um, actual uh, UN documents, you know, little documents that you can read and get from the archives. This is before they were all put together in a wonderful book by, what's his name? Bill. Bill Shabbos. Shabbos. They now, you can now read all the debates. They're now bound in a wonderful volume. But I started to research it before he published that book. And I found out that fairly early on, the delegates had to 
were, were told by their states, it was sort of recalled by their states and told, listen, mates, you're meant to be representing our countries. You're getting completely lost in the, in, in the task that you've set for yourselves. They got so carried away. So I think it was a moment in time, and there was a point at which the delegates, for example, the Soviet delegate clearly forgot at one point that he was meant to rep be representing a Soviet, the Soviet Union, and in the early stages got really into the idea of individual human rights. And then by the time they drafted it, they said, oh dear, I'm very worried about this. There's going to be far too many rights for human beings, not enough rights for states. We're going to abstain. But they had a major, major role in drafting it. I think states are always a problem. There was always this total and utter unresolved tension when the declaration was drafted that states were given the primary responsibility for upholding human rights and yet they were clearly going to be the main uh, abusers of it. I don't think today is that different. I don't think the states were in a better place. I think it was that there was a, an understanding, a collective understanding that the world had come very close to its edge. And although we are not there exactly now, I do think we need to wake up and understand that they looked at that past and said, well, thankfully, we're fine, we've got through it, this is a moment of relative optimism, but there's, it's going to happen again. All of those people are dead now, they were writing it for us. And just as it was the NGOs and ordinary people without whom the declaration would never have been drafted, I really do think it is down to all of us now, just as the UDHR intended, to make sure that the declaration's relevance uh, applies now. What's more, what I find so fascinating, to be honest, in reading the drafts, is how much they kept coming back to this point that it's to the people of the world that we have to appeal. They kept seeing, they were state delegates. This is not the way most state delegates think. And they kept saying, it's no good, it's no good getting just all these laws and all these procedures. We just have to appeal to ordinary people. That's why I wanted to give this lecture, because I just wanted to remind everybody, you know, play my little tiny role in reminding everybody that these people spoke to us, and then hope by speaking to you, you'll speak to others, and so it goes forward. Um, in terms of information control, which is the other end of the, of the spectrum, it's an interesting... We've reached... An, where are you, William? I'm trying to think... There, hi. Um, we've reached a very interesting point in human history in terms of information, haven't we? I mean, I'm no expert on these things at all. But it strikes me that on the one hand, you do have states trying very, very, very hard to control information. And even sort of in capitalist West like us, we've of course had, you know, conglomerates, big business, Murdoch types controlling information. But at the same time, we've got this do-it-yourself development of people speaking to each other through all the ways that we know in our modern world, through social media and all the rest of it. So that I think that in many ways, information has never been freer. And even in the states where, and there are people in this room with far more expertise on this issue than me, but even in the states where the internet is banned, etc., information leaks out. Our world is interconnected in a way it's never been before. And in that way, we have a huge advantage over generations that have gone before. I mean, the, the, the famous ethicist, Mary, uh, Mary Midgley, she talked about how human rights have helped to connect the globe by giving us a sort of lingua franca of ethicism, of morality. But that would not have been possible without social media, without the internet before that, and the web, and the access that we now have to understand 
you know, what is going on and to speak to each other. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's true or not, but we all know that people who lived five miles from the Nazi death camp said they hadn't got a clue what was happening. Well, no one can say that now. So we do have this big advantage, however much states try to control media, we can find out. We can't use invisibility as an excuse. And it was actually not me, but my brilliant colleague here who called Human Rights a Visibility Project. Um, and, and he was absolutely right. But the Visibility project, project only really started to be effective when we got the technology to match it. Um, Kate, new developments in human rights thinking. Where are you, Kate? Um, absolutely. Uh, you will know again, you work in the business human rights field, you will know better than I how surprising developments, actually, the RAGE principles, the UN developing principles for business, and quite a lot of businesses responding well. To, to the idea that, well, quite a lot, not that many. You could speak about this much better than me. Well, let me put it like this. From someone who had the view of the world that I was schooled in, which I've made no secret of, was a leftist position, I wouldn't have expected a single business to be interested in human rights. So from my perspective, it, it's been interesting to see that it hasn't been totally neglected. And all the time with environmental rights, of course, there is now a movement to try to understand the impact of environmental destruction on refugee movement and, and to develop a new uh, convention to match the cataclysmic events that we're facing in that sphere, which will not only mean people dying in the hundreds of thousands potentially where they live, but also huge movements of people across the world like we've never seen before, and how do we protect those people? There is a whole movement to try and get a new UN convention to match that. All this is important because if human rights don't stay alive, if they don't develop over time, then they will clearly wither away. And they have developed over the time. There's been a huge evolution of thinking about human rights, of holding non-state actors responsibility for, responsible for atrocities, etc. Having said that, one of the, the problems, pro the problematics I was referring to in my lecture is a sense that people have that there's a never-ending inflation of rights. And somehow we have, as if, if the people in this room who see themselves as human rights defenders or just care about human rights, we have to work our way through this tension all the time between making the idea of human rights and the development of human rights law relevant to changing times and yet not giving a sense that almost everything is a human right these days. That is a challenge for us all and is one of the factors that I spoke about in the lecture of where the human rights community itself has to take some responsibility for the backlash against human rights. And then, um, Delora, um, yes, what's the best way to fight the populism and nationalism? Well, you know, if I knew the answer to that, you know, I would be charging you all. <laughs> Clearly, this is a, a very, very big challenge for us all. I quickly skated over some of the theories about why our, our world is seeing this resurgence of nationalism and so xenophobia again, especially um, in Europe and America, uh, and most particularly, as I said, only 30 years later after that resurgence of human rights, really the birth of human rights as activism in the heart of Eastern Europe is now the heart of xenophobia in many cases. What I was really saying, and I think we're going to have to end here. What no, I was no, really no, saying, we're going to have another set of 30 okay. seconds with half-second answers, if you stop soon. What I was really saying in my whole lecture 
is that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is basically a worldview, an argument, a mindset, much more than it's anything else, and it's incumbent on all of us to try and use that text to make the argument against xenophobia and nationalism, because ultimately we don't have any other weapons but our hearts and our minds and our activism. Fantastic. Now we're going to do something which is unique to LSE. We're going to try and do four, each of which will be 15 seconds, and that will include the name, and then we're going to come to you for a minute, and then I'm going to spend 10 seconds thanking everybody, and then we're getting the drinks. I've They're being prepared at the moment. Like it's the equivalent of intellectual speed dating. Sir, gird yourself for a quick one. Oh. These two ladies here, you're on. Set a good tone. 15 seconds starts now. Name, affiliation, and question. Uh, Mark Oakley from St. Paul's Cathedral and a trustee of the Civil Liberties Trust. Uh, I'm interested in the audibility project of human rights. Uh, the press, the politicians have done their worst in making us cynical about the language of human rights. What's a fresh language, a resonant language, going to sound like today, just as that language was resonant 70 years ago? Great. Thank you, sir. Quickly. Okay. No, no, not okay. Quickly. Uh, I am Domenico. I am Domenico. I am Good man, Domingo. Go. Yeah, Domenico. Um, my question is, if we take as a fact that there is no international justice, you know, and I will give you some example, like uh, uh, no, no. Israel with Palestine or Crimea in Russia or uh, the war Iraq 2003, you know? My question is, why the UK? Because we cannot count... In no, no, question. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I arrived in the question. We cannot count in China, Russia... A US because why the, the UK is not doing enough yeah. to try to reform the Security Council. Thank you. Thank you very much, Domingo. Got it out of you. The UK's responsibilities. Two people close to each other, so the microphone can be done very quickly. Ten seconds each. Names, affiliation, <laughs> question. I'm Bronwyn Manby. I teach on the Human Rights Programme here. Uh, you have mentioned a lot about ethno-nationalism. Could you talk a little bit about ideologies of market primacy and that threat to human rights in the context of uh, us being consumers rather than citizens? Thank you, Bronwyn. And last bit before we have a 15-second reply. Stephanie Grant, um, LSE Human Rights. I'm sorry for this question uh, because I think that you've given us a wonderful balance of realism and optimism. But watching the unfolding Rohingya tragedy, which we know about, it's widely reported. We knew it was going to happen, it has been happening. Has the human rights emperor got clothes? Thank you very much. Francesca, you have a minute amount of time. They're getting very thirsty. Go. Okay, in reverse order. Right, yeah. <clears throat> in reverse order, as I said, Judging it by abuses, total failure, let's retire it. Judging it by invisibility, speaking out, awareness, trying to fight back, including in relation to Rohingya, compare it to 70 years ago, and there is progress. Nothing happened till everyone was dead 70 years ago. Next question. Um, market supremacy. Yes, well, that's, that's what is so important in our, the world we're in now, where there is a greater understanding and fight back against inequality than I have seen since my youth. Please, please resuscitate the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Finally, the time has come to point out that in 1948, those state delegates thought economic, social, and cultural rights were as important as civil and political liberties, and in fact, there was no liberty and dignity without them. It made no sense to divide them. This is the time to explain that, to scream and shout about it. Third question. 
How am I doing for spades? Uh, for Domingo's speed, UK. Oh, yeah. Well, of course the UK isn't going to reform, excuse me, the, the, the Security Council because the UK thinks it is, it is the most, it's a font of all power in the world. It's never going to reform the Security Council. It thinks somehow it can, it can leave the EU, it can get more and more diminished, but it can stay powerful on the Security Council. Hubris, belief that, it, that we're going to get this empire back is what partly is driving Brexit when it comes to the elite. So the Security Council, they'll fight to the end on. But let's hope that by leaving the EU, someone's going to say, sorry, Emperor, this Emperor really has no clothes. Bye-bye, you're off the Security Council. And finally, <laughs> finally, language for today. Well, fun, joy, trying to see that human rights is what, as Ai Weiwei said, it might allow us to just survive on this benighted planet. But in the end, I'm sorry about this. I know it's not very modern, but I cannot improve on the word humanity. Thanks. I want to thank the Centre. I want to thank the Centre of Study of Human Rights. Heidi's over there for a very well-organised event. I want to thank the uh, guys with the red shirts and the microphones for doing that all so well. Thank you for organizing it so well. I want to thank you guys. That was very disciplined, very good. The drinks, the drinks, are, oh, before I get to the drinks, Sam Moyne is coming in a couple of days. He's a very interesting guy with a very important book. It'd be good to come and hear him Wednesday, I think. And LSE are running an amazing beverage festival, not drinks in this occasion, <laughs> but that liberal bloke. Uh, and maybe you should all say there, there's a competition to see what's the big problem that's been ignored by beverage. Why don't you all get on the web and say uh, 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 abuses of human rights because we need some exposure for human rights. That would be a way of starting this campaign. Uh, so uh, the drinks are in the atrium, which is very easy to find. It's sort of out there. Follow Francesca. What a prodigious effort taking all those questions and amazingly answering them all succinctly after such a brilliant, articulate, loquacious and tremendously inspiring presentation. Francesca Cloak, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.